This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Night in the American Village by Akemi Johnson. Johnson takes on one aspect of the American presence on Okinawa, the difficult, complex, and often quite depressing relationship between American servicemen stationed on Okinawa and Okinawan women. Covering everything from intermarriage to the terrible stories of murders by American personnel, this is a fascinating look at the human cost of the American strategic presence in East Asia. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 305, The American Outpost, part 2. The more I think about it, the more I think there is a fundamental similarity in the way that both Imperial Japan and the United States regarded Okinawa. To be clear, that's not me saying that the two treated Okinawans the same way. The extreme callousness with which Okinawan lives were handled in 1945 by the Imperial Japanese government, the project of forced assimilation, these things are different, more damning, than even the worst possible interpretation of Uskar policy. But they do point to one similarity. For Imperial Japan, Okinawa was always about strategic value. It was an island base in the middle of a region crucial to defending the empire. The decision to annex Okinawa was driven by that strategic imperative, and nothing else. When average Okinawans entered into the equation, it was as a secondary consideration at best. The Tokyo government regarded them as, at best, backward offshoots of the Japanese people, lower on the scale than even pre-Meiji Restoration Japan had been. The only real consideration required was to civilize them by making them as much like mainland Japanese as possible, hence the whole forced assimilation project. Okinawan welfare was never a concern. Developing the Ryukyus economically ranked even lower on the priority list than developing the actual colonies of the empire did. At least Korea had natural resources that were worth exploiting. The Americans, it is worth noting, took Okinawa for exactly the same reason. It had strategic value as a base for American power in the Pacific. There was no real consideration of the will of average Okinawans, who it is worth noting, pretty consistently always overwhelmingly supported some form of incorporation into the New Japan over remaining in American territory. The strategic rationale was the only reason to keep Okinawa. The annual budgets submitted in the 1960s by the administrations of both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson all contained this identical line. Quote, to protect the security of the free world, the United States will continue the responsibility for the administration of the Ryukyu Islands as long as conditions of threat and tension in the Far East 
require the maintenance of military bases in the islands, unquote. Lieutenant General Albert Watson, who did a turn as the High Commissioner of the Ryukyus, one of the two leadership spots in Uskar, put it more bluntly, quote, Loss of administrative rights would reduce or destroy the freedom of our military forces to act and would seriously impair the usability of Okinawa as a base in defense of free world interests, unquote. Once again, nowhere here does the will of the Okinawan people even appear. Both American and Japanese leaders were, in the final analysis, happy to sacrifice Okinawa in order to further their own ends. As a result of this focus on the purely strategic aspects of the island at the expense of the people living on it, the Americans ran smack dab into the same problem as their predecessors in Tokyo had. It was all well and good to nab themselves a strategic base in the Pacific, but what the hell are we actually supposed to, you know, do with these islands? The American answer to this question was, with some changes accounted for by the American context, remarkably similar to the answer of Imperial Japan. Inasmuch as there was consideration of what to do with Okinawans, the answer was, Americanize them. Give them a government patterned directly on the systems of the United States, in the form of the government of the Ryukyu Islands, the GRI, but of course with appropriate safeties in the form of Uskar's own lawmaking powers, because those Okinawans were of course new to democracy and they needed a strong guiding hand. Typical of this attitude was an offhanded comment by none other than the head of the U.S. occupation of Japan, Douglas MacArthur, to George Kennan in 1948. He told Kennan that Okinawans are, quote, a simple and good-natured people who would pick up a good deal of money and have a reasonably happy existence from an American-based development on the Ryukyus, unquote. Surely these simple people would happily accept the money brought in by American soldiers, and would accept their lot as the protégés of the United States. Both the Japanese and the Americans, therefore, shared a fundamental assumption that Okinawans needed to learn how to be more like them. Once they did, the Okinawans would come around, learn to accept their new role in the Pacific strategy, and all would be well. By the 1960s, it was clear this approach was failing for Uskar, as it had in many ways for Imperial Japan. The Okinawans, far from accepting American rule, were organizing against it more fiercely than ever. Joined by a mainland Japanese government that was increasingly interested in restoring its control of Okinawa as a way to mark its own national resurgence during the post-war economic boom. Friction over American policy on the Ryukyus reached a point that one of the premier observers of the contemporary U.S.-Japan relationship, Edwin O. Reischauer, described Okinawa as, quote, perhaps the gravest single problem in Japanese-American relations, unquote. American attempts to win over the Okinawans to Uskar's cause, meanwhile, backfired pretty consistently when they weren't actively shooting themselves in the foot. A lot of attention was put into projects like Uskar-backed newspapers designed to put forward a good interpretation of American policy. Far less was paid to things like, I don't know, currency policy. For the first few years or so of the U.S. occupation of Okinawa, the economy was a confused mess of U.S. dollars, new yen from the mainland, and a military script issued to American GIs for use on the island, called A-type script, 
and a separate military scrip for civilian use called B-type scrip. Eventually, U.S. dollars and mainland yen were barred by Uskar in favor of these two military-issued currencies. Essentially, Uskar was issuing its own money. This was supposed to be a stopgap to help stabilize the economy of the islands. It's all a bit abstract, but generally stronger currencies like the U.S. dollar are better for a more developed economy, weaker currencies are better for a developing economy. Okinawa was firmly in the latter category, it had never been rich, and it had just been blown to hell during the Battle of Okinawa. For such an economy, it's true the US dollar was not a good fit, so the military script system was implemented stopgap with the A-type system eventually phased out in favor of the B-type, known to history as the B-yen. Which is all well and good, except for the fact that first the A and B type scripts had slightly different values for some reason, and B, the values of these scripts were actually pretty wonky. One of the central pieces of the post-war Japanese economic miracle was a fixed exchange rate of 360 mainland yen to 1 US dollar. This was designed to make it easier for Japanese goods to sell in the US by making it cheaper when their value was translated from yen to dollars. The B-type script, or B-yen, was valued differently at 120 yen to the dollar. This made it far harder to sell Okinawan goods abroad than it was for mainland Japan, which in turn impeded the growth of the Okinawan economy. Why that choice was made is, frankly, pretty opaque, but more than a few Okinawan academics in particular have raised the suggestion that this was a deliberate attempt to keep Okinawa from developing any form of export economy, and thus keep it dependent on the United States and on money coming from American bases. When this system was compounded with extremely unfair pay rates, to give you an example, the average Okinawan working the best-paying job on the island at a U.S. military base made 9 to 20 BN per hour, with an average of 25 to 45 BN for mainland Japanese workers and 125 to a whopping 750 BN per hour for American civilian contractors, well, the whole thing was just not great for the development of the island's economy. Eventually, in 1958, Okinawa was determined to be economically stable enough that the BN was no longer needed, so Uskar implemented a directive removing them from circulation once again at the exchange rate of 120 B-Yen to 1 US dollar. The ostensible goal here was to economically liberate Okinawa. B-Yen were not accepted anywhere other than Okinawa, which by default forced the entirety of the Ryukyus into operating as an isolated economic unit. Okinawans literally couldn't take their money abroad. Now that they were supposed to be switching over to a new currency, the US dollar, they could, but in practice, all this really meant was that American companies could operate in Okinawa much more easily. Okinawa had, again, never really been rich, and the BN had held back the growth of Okinawa's domestic economy. Now that they were using dollars, Okinawan businesses just didn't have enough of them to compete effectively with American ones, which had far more cash at hand. Simply put, Uskar economic policies were bad for Okinawa. That may not have been the goal, but it certainly was the result, and Uskar proved either unwilling or unable to address the issue of how precisely it was going to develop Okinawa's economy to the benefit of actual Okinawans. 
The only answer Uskar was ever able to come up with was economic aid, essentially pumping money directly into Okinawa in the form of stimulus packages. However, the economic aid was pretty marginal, about $12 million in 1966 compared to a total spending on bases on the islands of $228 million. The stimulus money was never enough to seriously bolster Okinawa's economy, and while base spending was substantial enough to be the single biggest part of the economy, it also did very little to lift up the economy of the islands more generally. It actually hurt certain sectors. After all, it's not like many people are going to be coming to your beaches for tourism if fighter jets are constantly flying overhead. This is all one example of Uskar policy that's harmful for Okinawans. It's far from the only one. We talked about some of these issues last time. For example, the tendency to label anyone critical of Uskar, or God forbid in favor of reversion of Okinawa to Japanese control, as a communist. This was deeply alienating for Okinawans who may otherwise at least have been willing to tolerate Uskar. By the mid-60s, this heavy-handed approach had clearly backfired. The reversion movement was stronger than ever, Protests had succeeded in, among other things, forcibly shutting down sessions of the GRI legislature and forcing Uskar to back off from its previous attempts to shut down the Okinawan Teachers Association, or OTA, which it had labeled as a communist subversive group. Instead, in the latter half of the 1960s, Uskar policy started to shift towards accommodation with Okinawans. The hope was to try and encourage Okinawan groups friendly to U.S. policy to step forward and stand up to the reversion movement. But where could Uskar find these people? By the mid-60s, there were three major political parties on Okinawa, and two of them were pretty overtly hostile to Uskar. We've already discussed the Okinawan People's Party, or OPP, a hard-left organization that was one of the few Uskar did correctly identify as being tied to the Communist Party. Their major competitor was the Okinawan Social Mass Party, or Shakai Taishito, a social democratic party that was also pro-reversion and which cooperated with the OPP on that front. The only real Uskar-friendly major party was the Okinawan Liberal Democratic Party, which, just as the name implies, shared its policies with the mainland Liberal Democratic Party of Japan. Like the mainland LDP, the Okinawan LDP was a center-right party focused on business and economic expansion. Uskar hoped the Okinawan LDP would see the advantages of American rule in the form of investment and business deals with the United States. After all, the mainland LDP certainly had seen those benefits. But here, too, the American vision was met with some resistance. After all, literally just the name Okinawan Liberal Democratic Party suggested some form of connection between the island party and the mainland party. The Okinawan LDP was certainly sympathetic to Uskar, but it was also distinctly pro-reversion overall. Still, the Okinawan LDP at least advocated for a policy of slow, gradual reversion to Japanese rule with no distinct timeline for when that was going to happen, as opposed to the SMP and the OPP, which both called for immediate reversion. So Uskar began to switch strategies. Uskar would draw its own presence in government down to an extent. Wherever possible, American MPs would be replaced by policemen run by the government of the Ryukyu Islands, 
and Uskar would take a less heavy hand in rule over the island, gradually rescinding about 60 different laws it had passed unilaterally in favor of ones passed by the GRI legislature. It would also make some concessions for the Okinawan demand for democratic rule. In January 1968, Uskar made a huge announcement. The fundamental governing structure of the islands would change to an extent. Once upon a time, the chief executive of the government of Ryukyu Islands had been an Uskar appointee. The first four of them had all been American choices. Now the fifth one was about to be selected, and Uskar announced that this time there was going to be a full and open election for the top job. The High Commissioner of Uskar at the time, Lieutenant General Ferdinand Unger, put the reasoning for this decision simply enough. By having the elections, Uskar, quote, might momentarily satisfy Okinawan aspirations and thereby give us more time in putting off the day when our freedom of military operations would be circumscribed, unquote. The hope was that Uskar could cash in on what goodwill it had from this move and try and get the Okinawan LDP candidate into the top spot. Thus, they would be able to build up a coalition of Okinawans to support a gradual timetable for reversion, allowing the American bases to keep operating, at least for now. Meanwhile, with any luck, the left-wing SMP and OPP would divide the leftist vote and leave the road to the LDP victory open. If that was the plan, it was not a good plan, and it fell apart pretty much immediately. Almost immediately, the SMP and OPP were able to put their differences aside and rally around a single figure, one of the founding members of the radical Okinawan Teachers Association, Yara Chobyo. Yara was able to absolutely wreck the Okinawan LDP and win the GRI executive spot with extreme ease, a phenomenon he attributed in his victory speech to the, quote, pent-up inner voice of the entire people of Okinawa Prefecture, which cries out for escape from 23 years of rule by an alien people, unquote. With Yara in office, astonishingly, the protests against Uskar and demands for reversion did not subside. If anything, they increased. Uskar was losing ground. Victory for the reversion side seemed near at hand. As Yara was using his new platform in the GRI to lobby for reversion, a new wave of protest broke out in December 1970. In fact, fun bit of inside baseball for you all, this was the story I initially planned to tell during this series. It was only after writing two-thirds of a script before arriving at the mid-1960s that I decided to expand this into a broader look at the history of Uskar and the period of American rule in Okinawa. Anyway, going into late 1970, tensions were already running high because of a court-martial trial, one of U.S. Navy Petty Officer Johnny Ward. Ward had drunkenly run over an Okinawan woman, a housewife, and killed her in September of that year. His trial began in early December and lasted all of five days before he was acquitted, in what an internal memorandum for Uskar would later refer to as a, quote, miscarriage of justice. I've tried to find the trial records to figure out exactly what happened to get Ward off. Drunk driving and hitting someone seems like kind of a slam dunk. No luck so far. But the important thing for here is that the result of the trial, the fact that Ward got off, the fact that, like all American soldiers, he was tried in an American court rather than an Okinawan one, one more painful reminder of the island's occupied status, 
All of this inflamed anti-American tensions. Tensions were further inflamed when, by the by, the same year that Yara was elected, there was a major accident at one of the American bases. Specifically, a B-52 bomber leaving the American air base at Kadena on its way to go bomb the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, aka North Vietnam, suffered a major failure during takeoff and exploded. Astonishingly, only two members of the crew were killed and no Okinawans were injured, but the blast was huge, blowing out windows miles away, and that drew huge protests and even more anger against the American bases, both because of the damage the bases had created, including this explosion, and because the whole thing became wrapped up in concerns about American policy in Vietnam, as well as suspicions, correct ones as it turned out, that nuclear weapons were being stored in these bases as well. Those tensions boiled over on December 20th, 1970. The location was Koza, a small town on the outskirts of Naha, the capital of Okinawa. Right next door was the Kadena Air Base, run by the United States Air Force, one of the largest bases on the island and one that's fairly close to the largest metro area in Okinawa. As you might imagine, that proximity created, and still creates, a lot of tension. Koza had, and has, among many things, a great many bars, many of which cater to American servicemen on leave off base. On the evening of the 20th, around 11 p.m., a group of four American servicemen leaving one of the bars, presumably after a few drinks, hit an Okinawan man with their car. Fortunately for the man, he was actually okay, a little bruised and presumably a little freaked out, but no permanent injuries. The four servicemen went to check on him. Seeing that he was okay, they started to get back into their car to go on their way. However, even though the accident was not serious, the spectacle of these Americans just up and leaving after hitting an Okinawan with their car was enough to push the locals over the edge. They started to yell at the Americans, accusing them of a hit and run. Supposedly, the chants started to include things like Yankee Go Home and No More Acquittals, a reference, of course, to the court-martial of Petty Officer Ward. Someone called this in because shortly thereafter a squad of military police from Kadena arrived on the scene, but all they did was grab the Americans and whisk them back to base without checking on the victim of the crash, without answering questions about the liability of the Americans for any injury, assuming, I suppose, that this was the kind of thing that could be dealt with quietly. However, even without any serious damages, the fact that this was one more vehicular injury case where the Americans appeared to be getting away scot-free, well, that touched a nerve. To facilitate getting the American servicemen out, the American MPs had set up a series of checkpoints around Koza. At one of these checkpoints, American servicemen crashed into a car full of Okinawans. This time, the response from the locals was far stronger. A large crowd of locals, including among their number, hostesses and prostitutes catering to the GIs, as well as musicians, bartenders, students, left-wing political types, all of them converged on the scene. They attacked the American car, bashing it with sticks and rocks, and at one point, starting to overturn it. Once again, MPs arrived on the scene to rescue the Americans, but this time, they found the Okinawans far less willing to accommodate them. The crowd refused to disperse, instead swelling into the hundreds. The MPs attempted to disperse the crowd, 
first firing warning shots and then using tear gas. However, all that did was draw yet more angry protesters in. There were a lot of Okinawans with pent-up anger against the Americans, and they were not going to back down that easily. At one point, about 5,000 Okinawans were squaring off against a couple hundred MPs, with the Okinawans throwing pretty much everything they had on hand. Rocks, bricks, even makeshift Molotov cocktails made using liquor bottles that, until that evening, had been served to the Americans. The MPs, rather unsurprisingly, proved unable to contain the demonstration. Before long, this turned into a full-scale riot. The MPs were forced to back away, conceding that they could no longer control the scene. One American MP who was there, Bruce Leiber, later recalled, quote, The Okinawans burned car after car and kept throwing bottles and bricks at us. I was hit in the head and the arm. We retreated down the street. Whenever they advanced upon us, we just backed away, unquote. The rioters attacked American property, especially cars, which were often firebombed with Molotov cocktails, accosted American personnel, caught off base, about 60 or so were wounded, but astonishingly, they didn't actually kill anybody. At one point, the rioters made their way up to Cadena itself and burst through the gates to attack the facilities therein. They torched yet more American property, including a couple of highly symbolic targets including the offices of the Stars and Stripes newspaper, the newspaper of the U.S. Armed Forces, which had been putting a pretty good spin on Uskar and the U.S. occupation, as well as a military employment building where Okinawans had signed up for those low-paying jobs on U.S. bases. Oh, and the school for the children of military personnel, including a statue of Santa Claus, as well as a Christmas tree. One interesting side note about this riot there appears to have been something of a code among the rioters not to go after black servicemen stationed in Cadena. While the U.S. military was theoretically no longer segregated after 1948, there was, in practice, still a culture of de facto segregation. For example, there were separate black and white bar streets in Koza. The rioters appear to have been aware of this, and there are no reports of black servicemen being attacked during the riots. Meanwhile, a group of black soldiers stationed at Cadena who had ties to the Black Panther Party expressed support for the riot after the fact. Interesting example of some intersecting histories here. Anyway, in the short term, this riot, which we call the Koza Riot, didn't really change all that much. In the aftermath, there was a curfew for base personnel for a couple months, and military police got some new deployment regs, requiring them to ride together in large groups, but that was about it. However, symbolically the riot was very important. This was the largest instance of outright street violence in the history of Okinawa. While no permanent damage had been done, it really underscored just how unwelcome the Americans were on Okinawa. However, the American presence was not to last much longer. Even before Koza, negotiations to end the American rule over the islands had already begun. As early as the mid-1960s, the Japanese government had begun to pressure the United States to hand the Okinawan Islands back over to Japan. The government of Prime Minister Sato Eisaku was in the middle of overseeing one of the greatest economic revivals in history, Sato was in the midst of burnishing an impressive political resume that would be capped by his reception of a Nobel Peace Prize. Getting Okinawa back 
would be one more feather in the cap. The Americans were resistant to the idea for all the reasons we've already discussed. The bases on the Ryukyus were essential to the geopolitical strategy of the United States in East Asia. One former High Commissioner, Lieutenant General Paul Carraway, put it thus, If the bases were going to operate, Okinawa could have, at the most, a level of autonomy from the U.S. federal government equivalent to that of an American state. In other words, there's no way we could hand it over to a foreign country. By the mid-60s, though, the writing was on the wall. Clearly, the reversion movement was not going to go anywhere, and so some kind of accommodation was going to have to be made unless the U.S. wanted to commit to an indefinite and expensive military occupation. Still, that general acceptance is a far cry from a specific date or a set of terms. The negotiations on these issues between the governments of Prime Minister Sato and President Lyndon Johnson proved unable to arrive at a consensus. It was not really until 1969 that a series of factors pushed the U.S. to finally agree that it was time to start talking about a firm timetable for reversion. First, Yara Chobyo's election sent a very clear message to the Americans, and it raised the disturbing specter of a clash with Okinawan protesters, which did happen, led by a member of the Okinawan civil government, which did not. Second, in 1970, the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty was going to be up for renewal. There was some concern in Washington, D.C. that if America refused to back down on Okinawa, Japan might just walk out of the treaty altogether. Third, the arrival in office of President Richard Nixon changed the game somewhat. Nixon was committed to cutting costs to help pay for a continued war effort in Vietnam. Among a few other things, this is why he took the U.S. off the gold standard. Ending the expensive Uskar operations in the region was one more way to save some cash. So Nixon was able to agree with Sato in 1969 that there would be a reversion agreement within his first term in office. This did not solve the problem altogether. There was still the thorny issue of the American bases and the question of whether the U.S. government would be allowed to deploy nuclear weapons on them, something Sato had already banned American bases on mainland Japan from doing, though he had developed an extremely impressive ability to look the other way if nuclear weapons were being transferred through those bases, as opposed to being stationed there permanently. The eventual agreement was that the bases in the Ryukyus would continue to operate as before, with the land for the bases under U.S. administration, though the bases themselves would be consolidated a bit to get some of that land back for civilian use. The bases would also operate under the same terms as the ones on mainland Japan, including the rules about nuclear weapons. In return, Japan would shoulder the cost of American withdrawal and base consolidation, valued at $320 million. The final deal was signed in late 1971. The reversion itself took place in early 1972. After 27 years, Okinawa Prefecture was once again part of Japan. Uskar and the GRI were no more. The first prefectural governor for Okinawa Prefecture? None other than Yara Chobyo, who handily won the first election for that post and served until 1976. So what are the lasting legacies of this 27-year interlude? Well, there are quite a few. 
first and foremost, the continued American presence on the islands. The Ryukyu Islands total 0.6% of Japan's landmass, but 62% of the land used by American bases in Japan is within Okinawa. The bases remain open to this very day, and they remain very controversial. There is still a very strong anti-base movement within Okinawa Prefecture, and Japan more broadly. We're going to talk about it at some point. There are also powerful physical remnants of the U.S. presence. For example, in just the past few years, there have been a series of discoveries of stockpiles of Agent Orange in former American dump sites from the Usker period. Kadena Air Force Base is known to have had a pretty substantial amount of Agent Orange on site. Several American servicemen who served in the Ryukyus are known to have been exposed to Agent Orange. There have been worries among Okinawans about contamination from these weapons spreading outside the bases as well. Then there's the enduring cultural legacy of the U.S. presence. Particularly as more and more documentation related to Uskar and the Cold War was declassified, a sense has grown among some Ryukyuans that they were sold out by both the U.S. and the Japanese government. After all, Uskar may be gone, but the bases are still there, and with all the noise and pollution they create, well, Okinawans have never had a chance to weigh in on any of that via referendum, or election, or any direct method like that. Even the hated extraterritorial system remains in place. To this very day, the U.S. government insists that in order to provide U.S. servicemen with the same rights they would enjoy as American citizens at home, it has to retain jurisdiction over American personnel in Japan. That clause is still in the Status of Forces Agreement that allows U.S. troops to be stationed in Japan, though in recent years the Americans have realized that this is a very bad look, and they have started handing over some accused American servicemen to Japan on a case-by-case -case basis. More than anything, I think this sense of ill-use among Ryukyuans is the most lasting legacy of Uskar. It's true, the reversion movement was able to organize to bring Okinawa Prefecture back into Japan, but few histories of the topic cover the involvement of actual Okinawans, instead they focus on behind-the-scenes U.S.-Japan negotiations. Beyond the history, again, it's really worth noting that at no point has there ever been an election where the Okinawans themselves were allowed to express their views on who should be administering their islands. This, to my mind, helps explain the strength of opposition parties in Okinawa Prefecture to this very day. The current governor, Denny Tamaki, who is half-American, the son of a U.S. Marine stationed on Okinawa, he's an independent, but he was elected by a broad left-wing coalition including both the socialists and the communists, who have pretty strong showings in the Okinawan Prefectural Assembly. Currently, the Japan Communist Party controls 12% of that assembly, the Social Mass Party, the Democratic Socialists, controls 17 that compares to less than 1% for both in the national diet. And because of all this, the American-Okinawan relationship remains pretty thorny. The memory of the Uskar era and the continued issues surrounding U.S. bases and servicemen have created an environment that is, at best, mistrustful of American intentions in the region. The legacies of Uskar are a crucial part of that mistrustful legacy, best highlighted, in my opinion, by a visit made to Okinawa by the same MP 
whose experiences of the Koza riot I quoted earlier, Bruce Leiber. Leiber returned to Okinawa in 2010 for the 40-year anniversary of the riot because, in his own words, quote, I wanted to make up for my role in the things that went on here. Even if I was the only one present on the anniversary, I wouldn't have minded. I just wanted to be there for that moment of history. Turns out he was not the only one. He ran into a film crew shooting a news segment to commemorate the anniversary. When he told them who he was, they eventually asked him what he thought of the riots and whether they were justified. His response was, Absolutely. Okinawan people were pushed around by the American military too much. My only question is what took them so long to rebel. According to Liber, he spent the rest of his trip being stopped by people who asked to shake his hand, take photos with him, or even buy him drinks for saying that. Usker is dead, and really, by most Americans at least, forgotten. But its memory in Okinawa Prefecture, it lives on. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Curtis Sloan and Mike Lazaro for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we'll start a multi-part series on a fascinating moment of international history in the Tokugawa era.